John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 31, Entry 1227.PR2027, Certificate Number 42453, The St. Martin Fistula. This is from years ago, of course. Yeah, this is 2018, man. The reason why... We're going back to this entry is because a listener named Andrew had fond memories of listening to this in 2018 while walking through the Bois de Bologna in Paris. Strange episode to have fond memories about, but yeah. I love to imagine an unscrupulous doctor reaching into a man's stomach to see what hydrochloric acid does to little bits of meat. But that's wonderful, the the international appeal of this, of this show. <laughs> uh, Andrew, maybe... British, he was asked to suggest some ideas for a short animation recently to the BBC, which I guess does a series, I don't know if this is only for online, called BBC Real, mm-hmm. which has... R-E-A-L or R-E-E-L? which has a little short films. And he suggested, and remembering the omnibus about the Dr. Beaumont and the St. Saint Martin's stomach wound, he suggested a short animated film based on that fun for the whole family and he so he animated uh, a version of it uh, to build around some live interviews of a doctor who had written kind of the definitive book about the Beaumont St. Martin experiment and it is now on the BBC website this uh, six and a half minute video he animated based on first hearing about the story I believe on Omnibus and there is, in fact, one scene where you and I cameo. Really? Yeah. So, if the, uh, Are we animated? No, there's a scene where there's some little portraits on a wall. And up in the upper left corner, there's a portrait of you, just kind of incidentally, a little Easter egg. And in the lower right, uh, a portrait of me. Oh, nice. And so we're famous. We're on BBC.com. Awesome. So if this still exists, if the BBC exists in your world and is not blocked by firewalls, look for the curious case of the man with a hole in his stomach which was posted earlier this month, May 2022, and uh, and look for John and me in the portraits. If awesome. anybody else wants to, an- any, any offers our animation services should Omnibus ever need uh, an animator. If anyone's listening uh, from the BBC and you would like to do a long-form special documentary on 
Ken and my show. About an animated man walking across Europe. That's right. And you want to animate us? That would be great. And we could start a band called the Gorillas. But that's right. That's how the Gorillas actually started. Mm -hmm. At first, they were just a podcast. (laughs) Entry 453.ex1524. Certificate number 25939. Fanta. We'd had some Fanta talk on the last addenda. But Jonathan wrote to ask us if we have ever tried Moxie. Have you ever tried Moxie? Moxie is like an old people pop, right? It's yeah. like chocolate flavored, maybe? Um, or is that? It's not chocolate flavored, but it is weird. I think it's of New England origin, maybe Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan's recommending it to me because it's, you know, it's a complicated taste, not unlike Dr. Pepper. A medicinal taste, but he says it's bitterer. Hmm. So it's a delicious blend of bitter and sweet, which maybe explains why it has not gotten much further from home than New Hampshire. I feel like it's a pop that I heard referenced on MASH by Hawkeye Pierce. Yeah, like knee high? Yeah. Raiders always drinking knee high? Yeah, but Hawkeye might have mentioned Moxie. I think you're right, because it is that definitely is uh, the period of Moxie's greatest cultural influence would have been before the domination of colas and root beer. Um, he sent us, Jonathan sent us a picture of the longtime mascot, the Moxie Man. Oh, Moxie Man. But, you know. What does Moxie Man do? Well, it's supposed to be kind of an old-timey uh, patent medicine looking guy, but it doesn't look old-timey in the sense that, like, the Pringles guy looks old-timey with the curled mustache. He looks much more like a vampire from a German expressionist movie. Huh, he's the Moxie got, Man. He's got a he's got a kind of medicine menacing dark lids, and he's you know he's um he's been maybe hand tinted to give him pink cheeks, but they're not convincing. And he's he's pointing at me saying, "Live your life with Moxie." Google the Moxie Man. Here comes the Moxie Man, and you'll see the Ooh. and you'll see the kind of Peter Lorre vibe I'm talking about, which I don't really associate with Moxie Man with delicious soda pop. Oh, oh, he's got uh, brill cream in his hair. Oh yeah. And he's got the dark eyebrows of a of a Valentino. Yeah, he's a sexy. Uh, he could be a sexy Lothario. I but guess. wait, 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 wait! He's lover. wearing a scientist or pharmacist coat because that's where you would get Moxie from you your would. druggist. You would, but he's serious. He wants you to drink Moxie. But he's also going to like maybe kill your kids if you don't. Yeah, he's, he is. He is super duper not playing around, Mister Moxie Man. Jonathan. Um, Wants to send us Moxie, but I think in the last addenda we were discussing the the difficulties in sending groceries to a P.O. box. Yep. Um, however, we got a note from a Julie, and I don't know if this is true. Oh, this I guess this is something we said in Chindogu. In the end, we were wondering how to get mail at a P.O. box when things won't ship to a P.O. box. And Julie says she is a P.O. box owner who has found a solution. Just use the street address of the post office building itself as the street address. And say you are apartment number five five seven four four. Oh, and this has always worked for her to uh, you know to get carriers to deliver things to a post office that maybe they would prefer not to. Oh, there you go. I don't know if this is actually a life hack that the USPS would frown on, or if I'm going to be in trouble for telling people about <laughs> Julie's workaround here. Now, all through the nation, PO boxes will be inundated. Oh, you know what it was? It was Mad Magazine. Oh, do they love Introduced Moxie? Introduced me to Moxie. I'm sure it was reading about it in Mad. 
Well, if you've been wanting to send us Moxie or Nehi or uh, Ovaltine and you're worried that the post office won't deliver it, try Julie's workaround and we will report on which clandestine items. Well, so what is the street address? Well, it's a little bit tricky because our P.O. box is up at the North City Post Office, which Mm -hmm. has moved from North City to Shoreline, and it already has an apartment number. It's 18336 Aurora Avenue North, Suite 105. So you would have to convince the post office or your carrier to deliver to 18336 Aurora Avenue North, Suite 105, apartment number 55744. (laughs) Because what is a post office box but a very small apartment? It really is. When you think about it. Yeah. That's a whole wall of condos there, each with its own little key and a little door. Where your little ratatouille will live when he's not living under your chef's hat. <laughs> and maybe our good callback again to a, to a late July show. Thank you. So maybe if we put, uh, you know, obviously a, a, a case of moxie won't fit in there, but they will leave us a little note, as they often do. When we use the term moxie to mean you've got uh, nerve you've or got, spirit. You've got grit. You've got courage. It actually comes from the pop, moxie. So the word moxie did not exist? Because moxie was advertised as something that gave you nerves, strengthened your nervous system. Probably because it used to be 8% heroin or something, like like many early sodas. Well, it has this gnarly uh, gen- gentian root mm. ingredient in it, which is basically poison. Uh, well, it's probably the bitter flavor if it still has, if it still has diarrhea-inducing... Gentian uh, in it. Yeah, so it's uh, so it's a thing that, you know, that this moxie guy pointing his finger at you is actually saying, get, you know, man up. I'm going to give you diarrhea with my poison root. <laughs> I'll give you diarrhea with my poison root. It's hot. Entry 1311.PR1618. Certificate number 50231, The Titanic 2. This was an entry about various attempts to, uh, <laughs> to what? To relaunch the Titanic with, one would presume, different results. Like maybe it could get to a second voyage this time. Yeah, hopefully, you know, it's not like, it's not like naming your next space shuttle the Columbia. Columbia 2. Columbia Challenger. But uh, but yeah, the idea, in some cases, being to relaunch the Titanic. In other cases, just a desire to build the Titanic in a pond in order to have a fancy hotel. A listener named Joseph points out that there is, in fact, a movie called Titanic 2, uh, which was released in 2010, and it takes as its subject— an attempt like these real life ones to, uh, you know, of a, you know, on the hundredth anniversary of the Titanic, some eccentric millionaire relaunches the ship. Um, and they go through the same exact problems over again. Well, this says global warming and the forces of nature cause history to repeat itself on the same night, only on a more disastrous and deadly scale. You'd think the global warming would melt the iceberg, but maybe it awoken a Cthulhu. Well, in fact, in fact, there is a sequel, a horror, supernatural horror-themed sequel from earlier this year called Titanic 666. What? 
which is about uh, the Titanic three and the the ghosts and monsters that but that plague its launch. It somewhat suggests that there were six hundred and sixty four Titanics. That's correct. In between, yeah, uh, they're going to go back and make those movies presumably later. Uh, it's like how Star Wars was Episode four. Right. I wonder if there will be a equivalent sea monster that speaks with a Jamaican patois in. <laughs> in the, the uh, Titanic's four through six hundred and sixty-four. So Titanic two is clearly an attempt to uh, persuade people that this is a sequel to James Cameron's Titanic, which they can do because you know there's he no, couldn't copyright. Yeah, Titanic. nothing legally prevents them from calling a movie Titanic two, even if it has no connection to the hit movie. No, no, no. This is a movie about an ocean liner sequel, the Titanic two. Um, Academy Award nominee Bruce Davison plays the uh, the captain, I believe. Yes, uh, and oh, maybe he's not the captain of the ship. Maybe he's just a Coast Guard captain. He's he's a heroic rescuer type. It was released direct to TV in Australia, but I think theatrically distributed here. And the UK and Ireland it appeared on Sci-Fi. It is. Uh, Wikipedia calls it a mockbuster. Are you familiar with this idea? I've never heard of that. A quick, a mock blockbuster, a quickie lookalike to confuse people in the video store or streaming menu that if they liked uh, uh, Avatar, maybe they would like to see this movie with a similar name. And Wait, a Avatar guy. 2 is actually an Avatar movie though, right? Right, but you just make a movie oh, that looks like Jurassic Park and you call it Velociraptor Kingdom. Right. And you... You know, it happens often with um, animated movies because, you know, Disney can release a movie called Aladdin or The Little Mermaid, but they have no rights to Aladdin or The Little Mermaid. So it's easy enough for some fly-by-night outfit to release Say, a bunch of other... Aladdin, uh, Electric Boogaloo. Here's Aladdin's uh, New York Adventure or whatever. The reason why I really wanted to mention Titanic 2 is because in addition to Oscar nominee Bruce Davison, the cast includes no less than... Brooke Burns, who's my friend and uh, host of the GSN game show oh, I used to do. No kidding. Uh, uh, Masterminds. Brooke Burns. She's a former. She's a Baywatch veteran. And let's see, who does she play in Titanic two? And in all the years we worked together, I never asked her about her Titanic two career. You wouldn't have known to. And now I want to. She plays Dr. Kim Patterson, a glaciologist. A glaciologist. And she is kind of an icy Hitchcock blonde type. So uh-huh. you can imagine that that's like somebody's first idea of what a glacier scientist would look like. Well, it's a beautiful Kim Novak looking woman. Does she run in slow motion in this film? I don't know. Is she on the boat? I mean, you'd think it would be really good luck to have a glaciologist on board your uh, your ocean liner right as it's about to be menaced by uh, tsunami-driven icebergs. Looking her up here, she uh, she dated Bruce Willis for a year, and that uh, that that shows up on her page here. <laughs> well, you don't want that to lead off somebody's bio. I know. Oh, wait, there's a connection to Titanic too, because she uh, was married to Julian McMahon, the son of former Prime Minister of Australia, Sir William McMahon. And, of course, Titanic too has a... Wait, isn't Julian McMahon the nip-tuck guy? He was the son of the Prime Minister of Australia? This just goes back to my theory that there are like eight people in Australia. Yeah, he is the nip-tuck guy. So, yeah, son of the prime minister 
And uh, and this show famously, the Titanic two has a has an Australian uh, m- megalomaniac <laughs> uh, as its uh, as one of its. Oh, the real Promoters. life, the real life Titanic two, Clive yeah. Clive Palmer is yeah. that the guy's name? That's right. It's true. We heard from a lot of Australians who thought we were not hard enough on Clive Palmer. Well, let's let's come in right now and say what a ding dong. Boy, we're really not into that guy. He's a bad guy. We're just a head full of uh, a head full of Vegemite. <laughs> head full of Asha, but not really. Not Asha. What's Asha? A head full of Asha was a was a Brit pop slash sort of subcontinent. Uh, tune from the '90s. Brim full of Asha. Oh, whatever. Yeah, you know, brim is just a just a UK hipster term for head. The head is the brim of the body. Yeah. The body is the hat. The head is the brim. There you go. Entry one zero three zero dot ps five zero one zero. Certificate number two six four one nine. Rons de Vache. Rons de Vache is a. Alpine folk song that makes Swiss mercenaries weep with homesickness when they hear even a few bars of it yodeled to them. Uh, We received a lot of feedback on this. None from nostalgic uh, Switzers. Matthew points out, Matthew's from Ohio, and uh, he's from Cincinnati, home of uh, Weird Chili. And he says that even though we mentioned the Ohio State song, we missed a chance to mention that Ohio is the only state to have an official state rock song. Oh, is it is it uh, Cleveland Rocks by the Presidents of the United States of America? Wouldn't what if Cleveland Rocks were the state song of Washington because of mm-hmm. because of our love of Presidents of the United States of America? No, uh, even more iconically, it is "Hang On Sloopy." Is the is the official song... It's the official state rock song. Now, you know, Washington State almost had an official state rock song. Yeah, this was a 90s-era effort. I'm remembering it as kind of being a quasi-comic thing led by the almost live folks. That's is, right. Is that what happened? Yeah. it was the to, idea make, of, to make Louie Louie. Louie Louie was going to be our state song. Oh, and, we discussed this recently. Was it Last Addenda when we were talking about the Mariners? <laughs> it must have been. I can't remember it when this was. must have been. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, we did. And I talked about doing the frog, and then there was a long People, conversation somewhere about what the frog was. It must have been on the Addenda show. Or the frog. I always say frug, but I think somebody told me it's called the frug, and they can just take a walk. I don't want to say the frug, because that's what the frugal gourmet called himself. Oh, see? He was always like, people ask me in the grocery store, hey, frug, what garlic press should I get? No. And I don't want that, because didn't he turn out to like have molested half of Puyallup or something? Don't care. I don't want to get sued. Don't care. Don't want to know. Don't you don't care. care if this TV chef was a child molester? <laughs> I don't. Wow. I have only so much time and, and space in my brain. Just to be clear, you wouldn't be more into him if you found this out. No. Not no. at all. Oh, and it's not to say that I would be a fan of his without caring whether he was a child molester. I'm saying I just don't care about the frugal gourmet at There all. is no fact about him that would make you care no, no matter what crimes he was up to. I mean, down if, in- if the frugal gourmet walked into a grocery store and shot 40 people, mm, I, I still wouldn't care. I mean, that really doesn't go with his, I mean, sense of frugality. Maybe if, hey, he's, frug. if, he's, if he's stealing groceries. Hey, well, Frug, stop shooting us. It would go with his sense of frugality if he only used 40 bullets. <laughs> Why are we talking so much about the crimes real and imagined of late chef Jeff Smith? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. No, I don't care. Anyway, hang on, Sloopy. Sloopy, hang on. Uh, yeah, or, or parentheses, <laughs> Sloopy, hang on. That's chiasmus. 
they're actually a rock group from Indiana. Oh, no, but the members, the McCoys, were originally from Fort Recovery, Ohio. I love when old-timey forts have names for whatever terrible thing happened there. Yeah. Fort Frostbite, Fort Starvation, <laughs> Fort uh, sl- Fort Slow Recovery, Fort so Amputation. So many places in America called Dead Horse. <laughs> like, so many places. And Dead Ho- the most famous Dead Horse is in Canada. Um, do you know the story of the Oklahoma state rock song? Since Washington didn't quite... Wait, well, I, I, thought, I thought Ohio had the only state rock song. It does now. For a while, it did not. Washington, I think it never came to a vote in the legislature. Or maybe it did and it, it narrowly missed. Just because somebody else was like, no, no, it's got to be Hendrix. Or, or somebody from Eastern Washington was like, why isn't rock. it a country song? <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Oklahoma briefly had a state rock song. In fact, it was no less than, uh, I think it's Do You Realize. It's a, It was a Flaming Lips Do song. Do you realize? Is that your impression of Wayne Coyne's psychedelic yes. voice filter? Do you realize? You, you, as an indie rock super fan, have surely seen that band more I than once. I have seen Flaming Lips three times yeah. including once at Sasquatch where he was rolling over the crowd in a in a, a plastic hamster ball. Yep, I've seen him do that a few times. Uh 2009 Do You Realize was named the state's official rock song, which is amazing because Oklahoman May Boren Axton, Hoyt Axton's mom wrote Heartbreak Hotel. Whoa. But uh Oklahoma already had a state folk song and a state country song, so this um, Republican state senator was able to lead this movement to uh, to pick a state rock song. There was a, a panel of experts that picked 10 songs, 20,000 people voted online, and uh, Wayne Coyne beat out J.J. Kale's After Midnight, Hoyt Axton's Never Been to out. Spain. After Midnight, pretty tarnished by Eric Clapton, famous white supremacist. Yeah, Oklahoma wouldn't mind that at all. Oklahoma would be oh. like, wait, a famous white supremacist recorded this? <laughs> but um, what about Living on Tulsa Time? You could say that's a country song, but I don't think it is. I think it's a rock song. It does seem a lot of the other finalists just have Oklahoma in the name, right. like Leon Russell's Home Sweet Oklahoma, Not Oklahoma by The Call, mm. uh, Endless but, Oklahoma Sky by John Moreland and the Black Gold Band. Some of these could be made up, and I wouldn't even know. The problem is then at some point later on, so that became the 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 state song in April of 2013. No, no, in two, sorry, in 2009, in spring 2009, that became the state song. The call is from California anyway. But what they, are we even talking about? But here? they sang a song with with Oklahoma in the name. That would be like by the time I get to Phoenix, being the yeah, right, being the Arizona state song. When it's not even what Phoenix is, what like just a it's a potty break on that trip. Yeah. By the time I make, where are they going? Is it Oklahoma? Where does that song end? Uh, where does? But boy, beats me. Anyway. By the time I get to Arizona, that would be a good Phoenix uh, uh, theme song. But I think he's going from California to some place back in the Midwest, possibly Oklahoma. And Wait, did you just say the time I get to Arizona? I said by the time I get to Phoenix. Which oh, is by the time I get to Phoenix. The, yeah, the Glen Campbell version of the. Yeah, but I was talking about the time by the time I get to Arizona with Chuck, oh, by, with um, Chuck D. My Chuck D. <laughs> <laughs> that was a. It might sample the. Um, by the time the I Glenn get to Campbell Phoenix. Song, yeah. But it's a reaction to the Martin Luther King yes. holiday, or as it was for a while in Arizona, non holiday. <laughs> um. So the bassist of the Flaming Lips, couldn't have told you this, Michael Ivins, yeah. was photographed in a T-shirt with a hammer and sickle symbol. Oh, 
And, oh. oh, in fact, he may have worn that to a photo op at the Capitol celebrating this new recognition. Repro. Can't do that in Arizona. Uh, no, the, uh, the, the, after the House had already passed this, the Senate refused—oh, sorry, the Senate passed it, but the Oklahoma State House refused to pass it, having seen that Michael Ivins was a filthy communist. Yes. Uh, wow. But then— Also, you could argue, not a rock song, exactly. It's an indie pop song. But for whatever reason, the governor of Oklahoma at this point was Democrat Brad Henry— Okay. And so he just passed an executive order saying, no, do you realize is still going to be the state song? But then as soon as Mary Fallon, his Republican successor, took office, she opted to not renew that executive order. And You have to renew it? Like, what, every season? Yeah, you get a thing in the mail saying, would you like, do you realize, to still be your state song? Please take no action to, if you have already received this notice by email. If you look, if you Google... Rock musicians from Oklahoma. Is it a short list? Boy. <laughs> I mean, Leon is, Russell is from Oklahoma. I mean, honestly, it should be a Leon Russell song. Uh, Jim Keltner is from Oklahoma. So oh. session musicians from Oklahoma, right? <laughs> Elvin Bishop is from Oklahoma. There's some bluesy rock in there. St. Vincent. It should be a St. Vincent song. Yeah, see, and you love St. Vincent, but name a St. Vincent song. <laughs> well, if if she would just record one about Oklahoma. And, you know, I mean, Woody Guthrie probably has the state the state folk, folk song, song already. Right. But, I mean, you get, if you're like, rock musicians from Oklahoma, you get into Vince Gill, Toby Keith, and Reba McIntyre pretty fast. Well, speaking of Not Nashville superstars. Rock. Songs? At some point during that show, we asked what the equivalent song would be for an American. What would make an American swoon with nostalgia? And American. I feel say. like you eventually decided it was Lee Greenwood's Proud to Be an American, <laughs> maybe? I would not have chosen it. Uh, that, at least I know I'm free. That inspired uh, Ryan to tell a story about uh, once when he was... Uh, a grad school, a grad student in Kansas City going to a Royals game on a cold night, but a decent crowd. Uh, the Royals at one point were down, had the bases loaded with two outs, and young future franchise hero Alex Gordon is up. And this is an iconic, dramatic baseball moment. Mm-hmm. And he gets to his feet and finds that he is the only person there cheering or caring about uh, about, about, about this two-out potential Home run. And why? It, why? Oh, you've been to Mariners games. Yeah. Like, this is a very relatable story to me. Everybody's looking at the nachos. Anyway, uh, Ryan was the only one to cheer. No energy, silence. Gordon strikes out, ending the inning, losing the opportunity. Boom. However, at the, at, at the end of the bottom of this inning, over the PA, they start to play Garth Brooks's Friends in Low Places. And every single person in the park stands up, cheers, and sings along with every word of the song. So in Ryan's opinion, it would be a song off of uh, No Fences that would be whatever America's greatest. Yes, but I have ne- never heard that song. It does not represent me or my feelings at all. So that's how we know you weren't at that game. You were not yeah. standing up singing every word of Friends in Low Places. What about uh, We're Coming to America Today by Neil Diamond? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like Today! it. Today! Or uh, born in the USA? Why? Why isn't that? Oh, because it's anti-Vietnam War. We can't have that. That song is only ironically patriotic, and half the country won't because Neil Diamond's Jewish. Half the country won't vote for uh, 
right. co- coming to America. What about any song by the band America? How about Living in America? Well, they were in Britain. Um, How about Living in America by James in Brown? In America. Ha! Now, keep in mind, it doesn't have to be a <laughs> song about America. Ron Stavash does not is not like, oh, Switzerland is the best. Our knives and fondue are good. Right. Well, in that case, what's the best song in America? What song would make any American immediately weep and wish to head home? Is it uh, is Jimi it Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner? American American <laughs> Girl by Tom Petty? Yes. That's it. <laughs> I mean, no place is more American than Florida. Everybody can agree on Tom Petty, right? Is there anyone in America that's like, nah, Tom Petty? I was just talking to somebody the other night about how sad it was that I thought I had years to see Tom Petty live and yeah. never went. I mean, Tom Petty just, it, I don't know. It feels like it transcends all borders. Do you remember that Ron Stavash is the, it later was immortalized by Rossini as the kind of that morning is breaking song? That's it. From a million Looney Tunes cartoons. Mm-hmm. A listener named Pete sent us a video providing actual proof of his story that his burning man camp random pants oh boy how do how are burning man camps named why is it called random pants cuz you have to be able to sit when you're riding your unicycle across the playa <laughs> and you come upon a girl whose hair is on fire and she's like well let's hang out and juggle later you're like coming over to random pants but then his explanation for this is think penny cup for pants how does that help explain the name Random Pants if I think Penny Cup for Pants? Think Penny Cup for Pants. I dare you. These are, Those are just random, that's random gibberish. Think Penny Cup for Pants? <laughs> it is. It is. Maybe it's a reference to the David Letterman production company. Pants. <laughs> is, is a Penny Cup what a beggar holds? I would call it that. So it's like, don't. Think it's a Penny Cup for Pants. So you sit there and people throw, you sit there busking and people throw pants at you? Random Pants. Anyway, every day at his camp begins with um, Rance DeVache from Rossini playing full blast over the speakers, and every day there's a big communal dance outside the the weird geodesic dome-looking thing. <laughs> and he sent us a video of uh, uh, a few dozen happy people moshing away by the morning's first light to, uh, to the Swiss folk song. And he what? also says there are a few dozen people. For every person dancing, there are a dozen more lying in tents cursing yeah. Every damned morning with that song? Yeah, of course. Uh, 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 what, uh, at your Burning Man camp, what would be the song you played bright and early every morning next to my Burning Man camp where we were furious at you? Um, Although you don't get up till 11 either, so. Yeah, no. Uh, but what? I just what's my goal here? To piss off your camp? Yeah, or just to have a morning song that makes all of your random pants get up and, and mosh. It would be Living in America from, from, from Rocky Four. Did it, did <laughs> station to station. I would play Jimmy Hendrix's Fire. Nothing gets people going more. Bow, 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 down, down. It's got to work every day, even when you get tired of it, and then it becomes ironic, and then it comes back to liking it, and then you get tired of it again. It's got to work through every, all the five stages of grief. I cannot think of a song that would do that better than than Fire. Do 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 do. I I just want to wake people up gradually. Like what? What if it was? What if it was Down to the Waterline by Dire Straits? What if there's just some some sweet British blues licks? Okay. Waking people up. A little, yeah. a little Mark Knopfler noodling every morning. I would go with Roller Girl <laughs> every time. Uh, roller Girl. 
At one point, this is the final note on Ron Stavash, we mentioned that this uh, folk song is not in any uh, national language of Switzerland, but it's in a weird dialect now usually called Arpitan, but more commonly called Franco-Provençal. Okay. And Rob was very surprised to hear a Swiss language called Franco-Provençal, since Provence would be nowhere near the region where that would be spoken, and he's absolutely right. So he went down a rabbit hole trying to figure that out, and it seems like the only reason it's called Franco-Provençal is because one dude, uh, like, chose it as a name, one Graziato Isaia Ascoli, hmm. just ch- a, a, a linguist in a day when there were no linguists, said, I'm going to call this Franco-Provençal because to me it has some qualities of, of French languages and some qualities of Provençal languages. Oh, I thought maybe the Franco in this case was spelled with a K and was part of some Frankish uh, language group. Well, maybe. He he uses Franco as, as uh, for what he calls the Langdual. The Langdual. Which I guess is just northern, a continuum of, of northern Gallo-Romantic early languages. But this is a Swiss dialect. Yes. Which would more accurately, which more accurately could be called Arpitan, but it's still called Franco-Provençal incorrectly, um, just based on this 19th century amateur uh, and modern, the modern literature has not adjusted. So, That's why they had to, had to uh, revise the DSM-4 because it kept accusing people of, of, uh, I have Franco-Provençal syndrome. Yeah. And it's like, no, we don't say that anymore. It's not even a syndrome anymore. Entry 958.jb3826. Certificate number 49394. Point Nemo. This is the point in the South Pacific where it is further from dry land than anywhere else on Earth. We heard from a lot of UFOs trying to tell us that they're not really UFOs, didn't we? They're like, no, 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 nothing to see here. We actually, I want to cite myself, I forgot one of the alien connections to this actual spot. Oh. The H.P. Lovecraft story, The Call of Cthulhu, which I think is the first appearance of the titular tentacled old one, uh, wrote that the creature had a lair in a lost city called Ryla, with an apostrophe, he gives a latitude and a longitude for Ryla, 47.9 degrees south, 126 degrees, 43 minutes, I think I said it wrong, 47 degrees, 9 minutes south, 126 degrees, 43 minutes west, which are, that's astoundingly close to the actual point of inaccessibility in the South Pacific. Wow. So even before anybody had done the math to see where the center of the Pacific Ocean was, Lovecraft was putting... Cthulhu's there. Cthulhu's there. So he knows something we don't. Clearly, there's something in the water. I mean, he knew a lot of weird racist beliefs that we sure. we don't know. Like he thought that all Greeks were untrustworthy because they had weak chins or something. Yeah, right. Um, I can't, but ass- can't confirm or deny. But assuming that he was as right about aliens as he was wrong about his racial beliefs, uh, I would watch out if you're going to Fort Nemo. Fort Nemo. Yeah, Fort Nemo. Yeah, I'm going to build a fort there. <laughs> deep, deep under the ocean, 
where a, the UFOs are parked. A different Jonathan, not the Jonathan who wanted us to know about uh, how gross moxie tastes, uh, had two follow-up points. He's a classics major. He was the one that pointed out... Strike one. <laughs> no, he's saying that this will be... Uh, if we mention his classics gleaned wisdom on the show, it's really a point that lets him defend his degree to his parents who presumably paid for it. Oh, oh, okay. Let's, let's so, do so it. So the more we talk up his, his bona fides as a scholar of the ancient world... I'm all about people getting liberal arts degrees that infuriate their parents who want them to get, like... <laughs> Computer science degrees or engineering degrees. This was probably is, hits very close to home for you. Yeah. <laughs> a he classics was, degree. He was the one that reminded us that both obelisk and pyramid come from uh, f- the etymologist for foods of the same shape. Oh. In this case, I think I incorrectly said that uh, Odysseus used the word Nemo to fool the blinded Cyclops. Nemo means no one. The, he told the Cyclops that Nemo blinded you. So, uh, when the Cyclops went home to the other Cyclopes, Cyclopoids, uh-huh. they all said, who blinded you? And he was like, nobody, nobody. And they were like, oh, good. That's great. Problem solved. And he's like, no, you have to help me. Nobody blinded me. And they're like, yeah, we, we love that. That's, we got it. We love that for you. That's great. Uh-huh. But uh, Jonathan had to correct me on the fact that Nemo is a word of Latin origin, womp, womp, which means womp. this is, which means the translation I read had what uh, anachronistically borrowed the Latin term. And so what is uh, Nemo in Greek? I'm glad you asked. Um, Jonathan got a, a very expensive degree. Uh-huh. To what did he say? That the word would be utis. Utis. <laughs> Remember Lex Luthor's sure, sidekick? Utis. We love utis, the funny music that plays when yeah. he gets up to hijinks. Uh, it's the same. So that means no, I guess, no man or no person. It's the same Ooh, prefix in utopia that means no place. Oh, utopia is you know no place, the place that doesn't exist. Utis would be Utis would be nobody. The other thing Jonathan pointed out is that uh, I think we mentioned the International Space Station in that episode because it's the the Point Nemo has become a, a graveyard for satellites who that's, whose orbits have decayed. He said we should have mentioned the even more interesting fact that when the ISS flies over Point Nemo. The astronauts are the closest humans to the area. Oh, that's cool. Because they're at 1,200 miles. Right. And the three, the points of the triangle that border Point Nemo are further than that. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. I thought you were going to say every time they fly over Point Nemo, they... They pee. Yeah, they jettison a little bag of dog poop or whatever. Yeah, to feed Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. That's what Cthulhu... Lo- or maybe just to, <laughs> to show him who's boss. Hey, Cthulhu, we're pooping on your lawn. Surely in your Jeopardy years, you have... Uh, encountered or been friends with Cthulhu. classics majors. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I can't, not enough to generalize anything about them. I mean, I admire the uh, the purity of choosing that as a major, I guess. It's, I mean. Especially if you, especially if you don't come from a trust fund family. I knew a classics major at the University of Washington, and I have to say I envied how esoteric they were. They were, they lived as esoteric as they studied. Brian wrote to point out that one of the three islands that triangulates Point Nemo, the point that, at which it's equidistant from, is the westernmost uh, extension of the Easter Island archipelago called Motunui. What we did not mention, but probably every listener with a child under 10 was saying, is that Motunui is also the name of the fictional island in the movie Moana. 
Oh. Have you had to watch Moana it's, with well, your kid? Well, not a fictional island then, but not inhabited by Polynesians, I'm guessing. Well, it's uninhabited, but if you'll remember your Moana, the movie does end with her inspiring her stay-at-home people to once again hit the high seas. Yeah, get those boats out of mothballs. So maybe they they did leave, leaving behind the uninhabited island of Motunui, which is now one of the three islands used to measure where Point Nemo is. Do I have not watched Moana in a while, and I feel like I should watch it again. You got to keep keep up. Well, I just spoiled the ending. Sorry. Oh no, I knew that already. Well, there there was a there was a monster, uh, a, a volcano monster. Is there though? Is there? Right. It turns out. Is there? Maybe the real monster was the friends we made along the way. Uh huh. Maybe the real monster lives inside you. Uh, you at some point during this entry, you asked the rhetorical question, how many fish concerts could occur simultaneously in Burlington, Vermont? How many? I don't how many remember members this, of fish but it does are there? seem like the kind of thing you're likely to say. What if Guster was playing, but they were covering fish? You're going to be shocked to hear that Brian is a fish fan who wants to send us a lengthy uh, uh, answer to this question. <laughs> but wait, did he politely ask whether we would be receptive to the answer before sending it? I really think that would have been... That would have been polite. You need yeah. consent to hey, tell people I, about fish. Can I send you a really long thing I wrote about fish in response to what you asked? Like when I was knocking doors as a Mormon missionary, we would always say, hey, would you like to hear a short message about the family? Yeah. We would never just launch into it. You wouldn't just be like like me when I was canvassing for the, the public interest research group. And I would say, hey, let me just tell you about the Clean Water Act. No, no, no. Don't shut the door. I was talking to a couple of friends last night that worked the Amnesty International table outside the McCartney show just because they wanted to get into the show. Uh-huh. I guess, is, that a, is, that, is that a move? You, you it, work the It feels the like that's a table? McCartney move, like, like he wants to have Amnesty International in front of all his shows and he gives free tickets. Apparently, my friend, until manning the table that night, did not know what Amnesty International was. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. So I guess he was really full of zeal as he was trying to flag people down. Hey, have you heard about this? Hey, I just read this today. There's a lot of political <laughs> prisoners and it's a bummer. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, Brian did not ask for consent, but he did say to his awareness, there have never been two fish concerts happening at once but they have played 190 concerts in burlington total and on one day may 1st 1985 they did play four separate concerts in that city yes so perhaps not simultaneously but you could have gone to see fish four times on may 1st 1985 if i ever had a time machine first i would kill hitler yep Sure. Then I would kill the members of Fish, so I would not so, have to see all four of these shows. A, it's a big mistake to kill Hitler, but yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, the Long Winters played four concerts. No. No. Wait, yeah. Four concerts in Seattle on the day of the release of our uh, record, Pretend to Fall. Were you zipping around the city to do a record show and a KEXP and a... That's right. We played all three sonic booms that were open at the time. Take that, Easy Street. That's right. And then we ended up playing two shows at Easy Street, too. Not on that day. But then we, um, but then we went to KEXP and played the, played the final of the four shows. Brian, Pretty hot. Brian, so you're tied with Fish, then. You need to do a five-show day. We actually made a tour T-shirt for the, for the day. And if you went to all four shows, you got a T-shirt. Did it have a map? It did. That would be funny. It did. Uh, because Brian is now... Uh, Got a role talking on his role talking about fish. He wants to mention that um, in the Listomania show, when you when you complained about how when bands do residencies, they always do the same songs. Yeah, and I think I said the same thing because Springsteen's Broadway residency. I think he 
switched up one song in the encore and that was about it. But he just wants you to know that when Fish did that 17-day residency at Madison Square Garden, John, yes, they played 26 sets, did not repeat a song, 237 different songs. That is so Fish. It really is. Did they play Dark Side of the Moon all the way through? As one of the songs? I would not be surprised. I, I'm, I assume the 237 songs includes a lot of unexpected covers. How? But this is this is the ultimate question for that. Not maybe the ultimate question, but this is a question because if – how many shows were they in, in Madison Garden? Uh, 17, 17 days, 24 shows. I just lost the email. There have to be – 26. A not insignificant number of people that attended every show. That is correct. But, you know, that's true of uh, – of Springsteen's residency, you know, right. like how many people went to see that guy every other night yep. or tw- or flew to New York and saw a week's worth of shows from London and heard the exact same songs every night. It is probably not true when Avril Lavigne plays more than one show, but I bet you it's because her set is the same both nights. No, I go to Avril Lavigne and I hold up a sign that says like, I've seen you 86 <laughs> times and she can't fact check that. No. How would she know? I mean, uh, it, That's it, right. How would she know? And she's Canadian, so she's probably a Jeopardy fan. She's like, hey, that dude from Jeopardy has seen me 86 times. Well, and she's a Canadian, so she's extremely gullible. <laughs> Are they gullible, too? Oh, yeah. They're polite. but And what, gullible. No, what if, they're actually, what if they're actually onto you, but they just have to be polite about it? What if they're not gullible? I told you I went into a restaurant there one time and looked up at the – it was like a fast food place, but a no-name one. I looked up at the, at the menu and I said, what's on the, the Hawaiian burger – and he turned and read the sign read the sign to me. And I was like, Yeah, I mean I can read the sign. I just want to know like what else is going on. And he turned back and was just like, All I know is what's on the sign. Sir, you you can see the sign. <laughs> the we also mentioned points of inaccessibility on land. I believe in North America that would be Allen, South Dakota, which we said was a kind of a uh, census-designated place and I think has the lowest income in America because of the hardships reservation. of reservation life. It's near the Oglala Sioux Reservation. Um, we actually heard from Evan, who has lived there before. Oh. He taught at the American Horse School there, and he can confirm that it is extremely inaccessible and feels that way when you're trying to get there. Um, he has no corrections, and he wishes us... Hanhepi Waste, which I assume is a is a Oglala Sioux greeting or farewell, but he does want he does want to point out that he once visited uh, before it got turned back over to the tribe. He visited uh, a part of Pine Ridge, uh, which was which was in Badlands National Park and which was full of active ordnance until 2011. It was a uh, World War II era artillery. Ground? Is that what that's called? Yes. Artillery range. Artillery range. There you go. And he tried to go hiking there, and the ranger was like, you need to fill this out in case you step on a landmine or something. Because I guess that was happening. Until they finally, some, you know, committee met and were like, let's take out the trash and give it back to the tribe. You know, Allen, South Dakota is very close to Carhenge. In uh, northwestern Nebraska, highly recommended. Is Carhenge what it sounds like? It is. It's a Stonehenge made of cars. Um, No one knows what they were doing. (laughs) Many years ago, I spent the night in uh, in Chadron, 
Nebraska and was walking around this little, it's like a little cowboy town out in the middle of BFE, very close to Allen, South Dakota, uh, having one of those tweet Instagram afternoons or evenings, I guess, where I walked around Chadron and taking pictures like, hey, look at me, I'm in the smallest town in America. And it's a cute little place. I kind of wanted to move there after getting several people commenting like, I'm from there. I can't believe you're in my hometown. What? And I was like, how can this possibly, how small is this world? Uh, but then I guess that's what's happening here in this Addenda episode. Well, I think we should take a road trip and go see Carhenge and uh, Allen. I have not, and I, and I need to hit North Dakota too. North Dakota and Nebraska are the two north central states I still have to check off. You know, we can do that in one trip. Go to North Dakota, then you just blaze through South Dakota, and then you're in Nebraska. When you say blaze through South Dakota, do you mean what I think you mean? <laughs> you know what the Nebraskans, uh, what the Nebraskans say about South Dakota? They say, "Yeah, you know, Nebraska blows, but South Dakota sucks." <laughs> Does every state have that? Yeah, I think so. I heard that in Utah, the trees point northwest because Idaho no, sucks. Yeah, I, uh, Wyoming blows and Idaho sucks, or something. <laughs> Entry 1172.ps3303, certificate number 52239, Slang Tang Rhythm. We got a lot of detailed uh, glosses on this entry from reggae fans. And various DJs. I bet a lot of people were mad at you for saying you didn't like reggae. There was that one guy on the Facebook who was mad at me for saying I didn't like reggae, and I was just kind of like, you know... To him, I was like, ha, ah, different strokes for different folks. But really, I think I should say, no, you have objectively bad taste, sir. And you're not being super irie right now. He yelled at you, and then a bunch of other people were like, whoa. Easy, man. Yeah, go, don't go so crazy. R- read the room. But in general, I think— uh, You are wrong. Reggae is amazing. <laughs> a bunch of people, a bunch of reggae fans enjoyed the episode, but uh, Rob and Mike, among others, pointed out that I think at one point you said that reggae predated ska oh my god i hate this conversation so much all you ska fans put it in your ear i mean reggae uh you know reggae predated ska's kind of rediscovery by western groups yeah but the whole like i don't know it just feels like yeah okay somebody somebody has to draw us a chart of rocksteady and ska okay okay more interestingly uh at one point we were trying to figure out what the least reggae band of all time was. What did we decide? You, I think, wisely suggested... Steely Dan? The, the Pixies, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're I think I was going with, like, you know, Fugazi or somebody like yeah. that, and you said the Pixies, and I thought that was a pretty good take. However... Gary Newman, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could go a lot of different ways. Maybe Anne yeah. Murray is the least uh, uh, reggae act. Michael says that the Pixies are kind of compatible with reggae. I mean, not really. But uh, on Black Francis's first solo record, which I did not love. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to that show when he, when he played at Numo's, supporting that first record. I, I was mean, like, what are we watching here? I was, you know, it's a little bit of a bummer because the first Kim Deal record, the, the first Breeders record was so good. And so then good. I did not love Teenager of the Year. However, one of the songs on it, Fiddle Riddle, is an attempt at reggae. Hmm. Michael has listened to it back for us and says it's. he's decided it's probably for the best that none of this influence crept into an actual Pixies album. Thank you for doing the work there, Michael. 
Entry 795.2CH2811. Certificate number 49382. Missing in action. Kind of wondered if we were stirring up a hornet's nest here, but the um, really the most substantive note we got was from Michael, a different Michael. Uh, if you recall, the origin of the POW MIA flag is um, somebody being mad at the American flag maker that made the new PRC flag for the UN when they replaced Taiwan. Right. And in calling up, appealed to their patriotic duty and had and had them design what became the the POW missing in action flag. Uh, and we were speculating on exactly how big a deal this New Jersey flag maker would have been in 1970. And Michael actually lived there, lived probably about a mile away from their headquarters in nice. 1970. Nice. Having spent his whole childhood in what he calls Sopranos country, Verona, New Jersey. Woke and, up this morning. And he says we were correct in our guess that they actually would have made the flags right there on site. And their estimate of tw- our estimate of 2,500 employees is probably not too far off. Oh. Um, a, a, ginormous, well, a ginormous building for what is otherwise a very, um, you know, a, a sleepy bedroom community for 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 people to for the b- city. bury people in cement shoes in the local Yeah, kill. when I say bedroom community, <laughs> I mean sleeping with the fishes in their bedroom. But he sent us an article from 2016 about how the old flag factory is being turned into... A roller derby rink. Even better. You, you can guess what it is. It's now not Annan Flag Company anymore. It's Annan Lofts. It's uh, oh. upscale condos. Oh. Um, but it's it really, it's a commuter town? It really is a huge building. Oh, and they made the flags for the first moon landing. Um, nice one. From his, from his part of the world, Michael just remembers that they used to commandeer his whole high school gym to clean... The largest flag in the world. They apparently have, they made the big U.S. flag that flew over the George Washington Bridge. Uh-huh. And the only place where you could clean a flag that big would be in his high school basketball gym. So thank you yet again. We get boots on the ground reporting for after our uh, after our lazy reference work is done. I wonder if Sylvester Stallone was the was the local cop in that town. Sylvester Stallone, who played Rambo, yes. Thereby closing the circle, the MIA circle. Are you? What are you, are you thinking of? The what's that movie where he's the cop? Copland. Copland? Yeah. Is that in? Is that in? New, it's that in New, Jersey, New Jersey, but I don't think it's. It's by the George Washington Bridge, but I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's near. He's very good in that town. movie, and a lot of people were like, "Whoa, he can act!" But, but come on, he could always act. What? What mean expendable Rambo? Entry 972.NE0406. Certificate number 38531. Potsdamer Platz. Uh, Michael, our previous correspondent, for one thing, he recommends we watch, um, what's it called? Babylon Berlin? Mm-hmm. But you've already seen and like it, haven't you? Oh, boy. I really like it, but unfortunately, my daughter's mother slash partner does not like it, partly because the protagonist girl is right out of central casting for John Roderick girlfriend. Ah, I see. And she's like, I don't want to watch this show with you where you're just salivating over this girl. And I'm like, I don't even see color. I don't even care about her. I'm just into, uh, I'm just into Weimar era Germany. Is there a way to watch this show through some kind of Instagram filter that makes her not your type? 
Like, what if you're mm-hmm. watching Babylon Berlin, but she's just got like a like a, a cute cat head on all the time? Uh, I wa- I wonder. But, you know, when, when I say that I'm not even noticing her, of course, I'm totally lying. I'm just like, no, no. Right, but I'm with her. I'm with her on this point. I think you should not be getting horned up to watch Weimar murder Isn't mysteries or whatever like it is. is that 80% of watching television these days is just that you pick the shows where there's somebody cute? No. There's I, so much television. You have to have some reason to watch the shows. I only just watch the soulful, depressing shows. Yeah. Bojack Horseman doesn't turn me on at all. Yeah, you did recommend that I watch uh, Severance. Did you watch it? Well, then uh, she got COVID, so we can't can't keep watching. We watched like five episodes, and I was just really getting into it. It's good, right? And then and then it's like, oh, now now I'm quarantined from the television. And even though even though they light Adam Scott to make him look all weird, he's still my type. So uh-huh. it's perfect. For <laughs> exactly. Me. Uh, Bill Cat wrote head. in at some point in this, and I think it was in this entry, uh, we were talking smack about the Big Dig. Right. Uh, Oh, wait, is he from Boston and he's mad about it? He wants to defend the honor of the Big Dig, despite having grown up through the 10 years of (laughs) delay in construction and $10 billion over budget. Has he ever been hit by a piece of tile falling from the ceiling? Here's his take. First of all, okay, it's awesome. And here is his supporting uh, arguments after his topic sentence. He loves being caught in traffic underground. It cut travel from the western suburbs to the airport in half. Okay. It opened up the north end. It added a great park. He says at non-peak, the traffic is much better. Number four, it doesn't leak that much. (laughs) Number five. At non-peak, the traffic is much better can be said of anything. (laughs) He he says we should listen to our own show on induced demand before we complain about why there's still traffic in the tunnel, and that's a fair point. Well, yeah, it's the precise point. Maybe they should not have dug it. (laughs) Don't build a dumb thing with the idea that it will... Make things faster. And here's his, here's his really clinching argument that won me over. No panels have fallen and killed anyone in quite a while. How long? <laughs> I don't know. Should we look up the last time? Yeah. Where did where did the kill someone more often? The, or more recently, the kingdom or under... Big, uh, big under dig. Under the bay there. The last panel fell... Uh, the, the one that killed somebody fell in 2006. So See, it has been It's been six 50 years. years. There are kids who weren't even born when that panel killed that oh, driver no, no, who, are right. in, years. who are now in uh, high school. Uh, it's a distant memory. Yeah, that's, right. that's think, right. And think of all the panels that didn't fall and kill someone. A lot of tiles did not fall and kill anyone. You know, like, why don't we, why do we always focus on the bad news? It's true. But, you know, the panel that fell is big. It's not just like a, like a, like a thing the size of second base fell and accidentally hit somebody. Like the freaking ceiling fell on somebody. Ouch. Everything's bigger in Boston. Yeah. Uh, he points out that the, he wants to thank us because the Big Dig was built with 85% federal money. So it wasn't even... Oh, so we paid local. for it. Yeah, we, we're, we're, we're chipping in. I mean, Washington State does that thing where every time the feds uh, offer to pay a bunch of money to build us some public transit, we turn it down because we're too proud. And then they give the money to Atlanta. Ilana from France heard you say that Des Moines means the monks. Oh, sorry. She, she heard you say it means the mounds. Is that what Des Moines means? That's what I thought. Uh, it does not. She's here from France to tell us it means of the monks. Of the monks who lived on the mounds. Well, no. See, that was my reply. Why couldn't the monks be on mounds, I said. Come to think of it, it's a near certainty. And Ilana said, 
I suspect you're being humorous, but since it is so hard to convey tone via email. So French. I believe John Reed said means the mounds. The monks may have been on the mounds, but it has nothing to do with the definition of the word. And considering the amount of time you both joked around about Des Moines, I feel that insisting on this precision is not a waste of time. Des Moines. Or Des Moines, depending. Typically. uh, uh, Well, she's really wearing her dominatrix boots here, giving us both a good lashing. She says she's in a hospital and we wish her uh, a quick recovery and many goods and cheese. But I think that's why she's saying it doesn't matter if she wastes time because she's in hospital. I mean, she needs to consider the amount of, of our time, the quantum of our time she's wasting. I believe that would be that would be thoughtful. But we're the one who mistranslated Des Moines. So. Also, in hospital is really a, really a coinage. It's British. She said in the hospital. Oh, she did. I was just trying to sound... Sophisticated. I'm sorry. That, uh, that was my bad. Um, wait a minute, but uh, but isn't hospital in French also another thing? It's not just like, hospital is also like it means like something a hotel, else? right? Or am I? Are you think she's just saying she's in a hotel? <laughs> she just got away from her kids for the night. I'm wondering. I'm wondering. I'm going to assume she's actually in a hospital. Okay. Well, get well soon. Her English is flawless in the email, unlike your French, Mister uh, of the Mounds. Well, I oh, do not oh. know everything. Why is it uh, my problem, mes petites? And now, uh, Omnibus uh, LLC uh, would like to um, would would like to post a job opening. <laughs> uh, Ken, why don't you describe the uh, the job opening? This is our new classifieds clearinghouse. We're not actually hiring, but Marianne wrote because she is cleaning out. Uh, the home of her 95-year-old parents who are moving to assisted living. Are that, they both 95? What a romance. Isn't that great? Yeah. That's the dream. Head to assisted living with your high school sweetheart right. at 95. Um, because you've been with each other too long to even hate each other anymore at that 95. point. 95. If you married when you were 25, you could be together 70 years. You know, uh, in the uh, in the episode Yet to Arrive, uh, the... Uh, about what? Can the, you, can you the, give me a hint? The omnibus episode about... About French cuisine? The mother sauces. Um, Preview. It turns out that uh, that Escoffier was married to his wife for like 55 years. You're like using the Addenda show to drop in facts that you did not get into your show. <laughs> that's right. It just occurred to me as we're talking about being married for that long. I was like, oh, wow. I mean, that's I re- forgot to say that in the show. That's really impressive in the 19th century. Yeah. I mean, because... Well, yeah. I mean, for, well, I mean, they did get married at eight. Sure, but, but they all died. But they when died they were sooner, thirty, especially yeah. if they're just you know eating all those rich sauces. Uh, so she's moving her parents, and she wants to know: Does anyone want a 50, 60 year old autoclave? Whoa! Why do they have a home autoclave? That's a great question, not answered in Marianne's uh, email. Were they scientists by any chance? Perhaps it could be a, a medical. I mean, what do you use an autoclave for? It's high temperature and pressure, so you could vulcanize rubber in there, right? You could um, sterilize your you sterilize surgical medical equipment. I guess maybe Dad had a home, uh, a little home surgery. Maybe he was in the trying garage. to uh, purify uranium. Uh, yeah, that's what I would do if mm-hmm. I was. I would put an autoclave first just to see what would happen. See um, what would happen. She has already tried her local dental museum, and they do not want it. So where is she located? Um, well, I don't want to dox Mary. Oh, right, but general general region. Uh, I don't believe the email reveals. So yeah, but I I imply this to mean she'd be willing to ship it to someone. Oh, 
Oh, I see. She asked us. Why not? I mean, yeah. How big is a home autoclave? I can't even picture one. I guess, didn't you have one in high school? We, I don't know if our lab did not have one, actually. But if you want uh, an autoclave from the early 1960s, please contact us here at Omnibus and we can matchmake you with. Yeah, an autoclave sits on, I mean, sit on the table. It's the size of a microwave oven. I mean, I would not use it instead of, in place of a microwave oven. Now, I mean, who knows if you're just going to boil a mutton. Yeah, I guess. Uh, sterilize your mutton before you eat it. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, Ken, why don't you take us to our favorite part of the show? In our favorite part of the mother continent. Um, what is happening with our little elephant buddy? With Essowit? Essowit, the rambunctious elephant child. It was really a bit of a roller coaster reading about Essowit's uh, April. Is he in trouble with the other elephantes like he sometimes gets? Yeah, you know, normally he's uh, a little bit mischievous. Yeah. Hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna set my settings from all orphans to Essowit. I want Essowit content mainlined into my veins. So in early uh, April, he's got a little friend called Bondany, mm-hmm. uh, who got down to their mud bath on April 4th, downed their bottles of milk, and then started to wrestle. Mm-hmm. They continued their game the entire time they were down at the mud bath, and the way we're having uh, and Bondany were having the best time. Every time Esso would run past the visitors, he would give little elephant kickbacks and then charge after Bondany. The keepers were busy trying to contain their excitement. So here he's just a little, uh, he's a little rambunctious. Yeah. Uh, two days later, on the 6th, no, this is not the right one. On the 9th, this is this is what happens. Esowit is called a gentle young bull who is always so playful and kind and gentle toward the other orphans. Uh who is always eager to wrestle Rojo and Bundini, but is, is generally nice to uh, to Kindani, I think, mm-hmm. a newcomer. However, on April 9th, Esso was being very mischievous, behaving much like his naughty friend Bondeni. Mm. So it looks like maybe Bondeni is being a bad influence on our little Essowit. If Bondeni jumps off a bridge, would Essowit? I think that's what's going on here. The Keepers wonder, and the Keepers is always capitalized as if it's like maybe a race of um, of Doctor Who mm-hmm. or Star Trek aliens. The keeper. Wonder if he has perhaps picked up these habits from Bondeni himself. During the midday milk feeding time, Esuit kept trying to steal milk from the wheelbarrow. Uh-oh. And the Keepers kept having to chase him away. At one point, he managed to steal a bottle and was running all over the mud bath area with the bottle gripped in its... Trunk as the key keepers chased him. That seems fun. Eventually, he dropped the bottle, and the keepers sent him to the naughty corner. Well, Eswit's going to have to start sitting in the front of the class if he behaves this way. There is a system in place, apparently, to send misbehaving elements to the naughty corner. Uh-huh. And I don't know if that... Naughty corner. Is that the kind of thing that actually works with an elephant? Do they know that there's a stigma? I'm sure they do. You know, they're very intelligent. I'm sure they know that the naughty corner is uh, is a little bit of a shameful place. On April 22nd, a few weeks later, Bondeni snuck past the keepers during the feed and ran to the bush. Uh, but when they tried to, when he tried to run back, the keepers were onto him, so they stopped him. So he hid in the bushes, rumbling at his keepers. Then Esuit rumbling at them. He's getting a little aggressive, and Esuit decided his friend was in trouble. 
So Esowit uh, tried to stand guard and keep them from taking Bondeni to the naughty corner. Whoa. Until finally, both Bondeni and our boy Esowit had to be taken to the naughty corner just because of his... Uh, well, His now, loyalty. let me ask you this. As someone who spent no small amount of time in detention, if you go to Naughty Corner with your naughty friend, how much of a, a bummer is that? That's not even a punishment at all. Maybe they're kept separated within the Naughty Corner. It's like go to your room where you have a full VR headset set up maybe, and stay there until dinner. Maybe this Naughty Corner has many mansions and uh, mm. and he could be kept apart from... But, but I'm getting a little bit fed up with Bondeni. It seems like Esra was a very sweet soul who is, re- is really just starting to mix with a bad element. Well, yeah, but I feel like the keepers need to teach Esowit how to manage his emotions. So when Bondeni starts inciting trouble, Esowit says, Bondeni, you know that this is unacceptable behavior. Esowit, if you're listening... Any friend that wants you to steal an extra bottle of milk during the midday feed is not your real friend. That's right. They don't have your best interests at heart. That's right. So it stand up for yourself. There, when it lists the new the new additions to the herd, you know, it, it talks about how uh, you know who who has joined Kindani or uh, or Mukutan or whoever have joined the the herd. I don't know who names them, and I'm kind of thinking maybe we need to. Uh, we need to adopt a new orphan with the proviso that we get to name him or her. Oh. You know, a more maybe a more omnibus-specific elephant name. Not that we would leave Esuit, although if he keeps being naughty, I'm not married to Esuit, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, well, no. I mean, we are married to Esuit. We're Esuit lifers, right? You're not going to... I mean, Bondeni, we're, we don't. We don't care about. I but. don't know. Like if that's why I keep stealing milk, and there's like a newer, cuter uh, elephant calf that we could name. No, we're bonded to Esowit. We can name a cuter elephant calf and be like, and you know, co-parent it too. But we can't. We can't you, abandon Esowit just because of little misbehavior. You think writing a check to Sheldrick Wildlife Trust is the same as being a parent? It's a lifetime trust. I mean, we're 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 we've followed pretty closely Esowit's. I Progress. see. You're emotionally invested at this yeah, point. Yeah, and also I feel like Esowit needs the the feeling that there's some constancy in his life. Continuity, like from us talking about him mm-hmm. every week on a Patreon bonus podcast. <laughs> Do you think we could go to Africa just to kind of see if we can get Esowit to shape up a bit? You know, maybe we can go to North Dakota and Nebraska and then go visit Esowit. And we'll take what we've learned on that trip. That'll kind of be our our... Our test safari, right? We'll go. To, we'll go to uh, Carhenge, and then and if that goes well, if we're still friends, mm-hmm, we'll see about Esowit. I mean, I do feel I was a little bit naughty. I don't think I ever stole. Well, actually, you know, my mom tells a story. When I was little, she fed me this formula that was like ground up liver and molasses, and uh, uh, is that the naughty corner? And. Uh, what was it like baker's yeast and all this stuff? This, this like dark black viscous bottle formula. Why would she give you this? Uh, to make me strong, hearty and strong. Cause it was the sixties and it was like, we, we're not just going to feed children milk. And you were a toddler. I was like a, yeah. A ba- I mean, as soon as she weaned me off of breast milk, this was what I got. Molasses and algae. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then my sister was born two and a half years later and my sister immediately rejected this brewer's yeast. Which is funny because today that's all she eats. <laughs> she was like, no, thank you. 
And so my mom had to give her milk in her bottle. And one time she was crawling around and I was drinking out of my, my molasses and liver bottle. And I took her bottle out of her mouth and <gasps> drank some of hers and realized my mom said I had a look of such betrayal on my face. Think how delicious regular milk must have tasted after you've just been had to you've been sucking down yeah. Vegemite for I, weeks. I looked at my mom and I was like, this little twerp gets sugar cream and I'm drinking liver yeast? And she said, I never trusted adults after that to this day. Did she send you to the naughty corner? Well, well, no, I think she put herself in the naughty corner because she knew she'd been gaslighting me the whole time. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 31. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.